Well, good morning. Welcome to Stapleton Fellowship Church. My name is Jimmy Smith. I'm the executive pastor here. Excited to be opening God's Word with you today. And Jason, thank you so much. Appreciate your story. And, and he's the real deal. Like, he just didn't wake up and decide he was going to start running. This guy runs all the time. And as long as I've known him, he's been a runner. And within the last year, he did something called the, the Bad Water, which is, is, uh, starts at the lowest point in the continental U.S., which is Death Valley. And it's a race to the top of Mount Whitney, which is the highest point in the continental U.S. And it's just insane. And um, he did it in under 40 hours, just under 40 hours. It might take me 40 years uh, to do it. So anyway, excited about your journey and love that you're using it as a platform to, to show people Christ. So thank you so much for that. Hey, today we're in the middle of Journey to the Cross, and we've been covering some episodes out of Jesus' life and ministry that led up to his death, burial, and resurrection that we'll be celebrating on Easter. And so today we're talking about Jesus cleansing the temple. And I really wanted to, I didn't, figure it was better judgment this way, put a few tables up out here today and just flip them all around and get all crazy and give you some real life, you know, illustration. So just think about that. Imagine if I had done that and how silly I would have looked doing it. But, um, but that's what Jesus did. He went into the temple, right, in Jerusalem and turned over the tables. So we're going to look at what he did in John chapter 2 verses 12 through 22, and see what we can learn from that today and how we can apply it to our lives. So look with me, if you will. If you've got your Bibles, you can turn to, to John chapter 2, or it should be on the screen for you as well. Starting in verse 12. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle and scattered the money changers coins over the floor and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you this authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, then Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed, it has taken 46 years to build this temple And you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this. And they believed both the scripture and what Jesus had said. God, thank you for the opportunity to open your word today and listen to it and learn from it. And I pray that you'll just help me as a a conduit for what you want to say to to speak with wisdom and to say what you would have me to say, and that our hearts would be open to what you want us to hear, and that we give you the permission to change our lives from your word. And so we leave this in your hands today. I ask you to bless in the words that follow. Thank you for the story that we can learn from. In your name we pray. Amen. So in John chapter 2, we see that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And you may have heard about the Passover, and maybe you haven't. So just a quick synopsis of the Passover feast and celebration. 
that particular Jewish feast and ceremony was based as an annual celebration to remember the time that the angel of death passed over the Israelites and their families when they were in slavery under Pharaoh. And you remember that when Moses was called to lead the children of Israel out of, the, out of Egypt and into the promised land, that he went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And, of course, Pharaoh immediately complied. and let, No, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, right? And so God, through Moses, played out the series of, of plagues, right? We got the frogs and the bugs and turning the river to blood, all these things that, that God did to get Pharaoh's attention that says, Pharaoh, I'm in charge, not you, and I'm asking you to let my people go. You need to do this. And plague after plague after plague, and Pharaoh uh, would not relent until God brought about this angel to take the firstborn son's life of anyone in Egypt who did not have the blood of a lamb across the doorposts of their home. So God commanded the Israelites, if you want the angel to pass over, you need to sacrifice a lamb and put its blood over the doorposts, and then the angel of death will pass over your family. And so as the Israelites did this, the next morning they woke up to screams and wailing. And you can imagine the Egyptian families and the horror that they were experiencing that very next morning as the angel of death did not pass over them. And so the Israelites put this into a ceremony and a, and a celebration to remember the time that, that God brought them out of the land of Egypt and, and saved them uh, from the, in this Passover uh, event. And so this is a very important time for, for, for Jewish families, for the nation of Israel. And at this time, families would come to the temple in Jerusalem to, to offer a, an animal sacrifice. And, and also at this time, they would bring and pay uh, the temple tax that was due to them as well. So there were reasons for people coming to the temple during this time of year uh, for their sacrifices and for the temple tax. And many families traveled a great distance to be in Jerusalem during this time to, to celebrate this and to, to fulfill their responsibilities. And so there was actually a need in Jerusalem for these services that were being provided in the temple. Many of these families came a long ways, and, and they had to have an animal for sacrifice, and, and they had to have their temple tax. Well, for the, for the animal, um, you know, if they were traveling long distances, you, you might have some difficulties bringing that animal with you for the sacrifice because you couldn't just bring your broken-down lamb for the sacrifice. You couldn't bring the one that was a, a runt and had a broken leg and a bad eye, things like that, and use that one for your sacrifice. You had to bring the best of what you had. You had to bring a, a pure lamb, a spotless lamb, the best that you have, and offer that as your sacrifice. And so if you're traveling across the country and you've got your lamb with you, things could happen to that lamb. It could get hurt on the way. It could get attacked by an animal, things like that. And so for many people, it was much easier to, to purchase that animal in Jerusalem once they arrived. And then the, the taxes at that time, were only collected in, in one particular uh, denomination. And so they, they would only accept certain coinage or certain money. And so people had to exchange. You know, there were various different types of, of money floating around. So they exchanged for the right type of currency to be able to offer that as their temple tax. The problem was the location of these services being inside the temple and the thievery that was occurring in these transactions. So when Jesus comes into the temple, he sees all of this. He sees what's happening. And Jesus exhibits anger. 
And that might be a little bit of an understatement for what Jesus did here. But I want us to look at why Jesus was angry. And Jesus was angry because the purpose and the act of worship had been co-opted for an inferior and sinful purpose. The purpose and the act of worship had been co-opted for an inferior and sinful purpose. Jesus was angry because of what the temple represented. It was the presence of God among the nation of Israel. And it was supposed to be a place where people came and worshipped. And that had been corrupted. God's design for the temple and the sacrifices was worship. And God wanted this to be a place where people could come, honor God, seek forgiveness, and be reminded of who he is. But all of that had been corrupted by these inferior and sinful purposes. Inferior in in the fact that these things just didn't belong in the temple. They could have been outside of the temple. They could have been in other areas of the city. And they were sinful in that people were being ripped off. And this was not God's design for the temple and the sacrifices he was requiring. When uh, I was a a part of, of building this building out, and I use that word generously because I was a part of it, but I I didn't swing any hammers. Um, There was one thing we did really well, and and that was the fact that we recognized that we needed what was called a uh, project manager because in Bible college, they don't teach you how to build a building, okay? (laughs) They teach you how to open God's word, things like that. They don't teach you how to build a building. But we had these responsibilities to do this, and so we had a project manager that helped us negotiate that and make it go smoother for us and get a better product and all those things. So we had a project manager, and then on this side you have a contractor. Right? If you've ever built a building, you have a, a contractor, and they're the guys that actually do the work, swinging the hammers, smoothing out the concrete, doing all the great stuff, following the blueprints. You know, you got your contractor. And on the other side of the coin, you have architects. And architects are the people that envision, right? And they see what could happen. They see what it could look like. They see what it could be. And they draw out all the plans. And they they put out the great artwork to help you envision what it could be. Well, the reason that contractors are contractors and architects are architects is because they're completely different people. Absolutely different people. They don't think the same way. (laughs) They don't operate the same way. Because contractors are function over form. It needs to work. It needs to be efficient. It needs to be inexpensive. It just needs to work. Contractors, I mean, architects are form over function. It has to look good. It has to be pretty. It has to have meaning. It has to have beauty and all these things. And the contractor, all he cares about is that it works. And the architect wants it to look good. Well, the problem is, as, as a project manager, someone in the middle, like you appreciate both sides of these, this coin, right? And you have to help these people work together so that you stay within budget. Because if you give an architect your budget, they're not going to stay in it. They're going to go outside of your budget because that's what architects want you to do because it will look better and it will be prettier and it will have more meaning and all those things. And so there's importance in that. There's important what the contractor does. And so you're, you're in the middle of these, of these people trying to make it work. And, for instance, we had a, a structure that was up here in this room off of the Sky Lounge. It's up in the upstairs where the tail section of the, the plane would come in. So this is an old hangar, right? So the tail section would come up way up high, and there were these platforms that folded down so that people could climb up there and work on the tail section. 
Well, these platforms that were up there were ancient by this time, right? And so they looked bad. They didn't serve any purpose except to remind us that this used to be a hangar. And so the story was there about the hangar and about aviation and all that was encompassed in this ugly little platform that was up there. And the architect really wanted to keep it. And it served no purpose. It was ugly. It didn't make any sense, but it told the story. And so when we finally made the decision to nix this thing and get rid of it, you'd have thought I'd kick the guy's puppy because he was really excited about keeping that up there. But by God's providence, we made the right decision and got rid of it. Um, but anyway, so we had this, this dichotomy going on. Because architects, like, they see what something could be, and they want to tell that story. They want to be creative. And so everything about a facility might focus your attention to one particular theme or to a theme. So, for instance, maybe, maybe you have a beautiful auditorium somewhere, and, and the focus wants to be this stained glass, you know, that might be up here in, in a part of the facility. And so all the paint lines, you know, go in a certain direction, and all the, the lighting brings your attention to that thing and, and helps focus it all there. And so the architect puts out these plans, and they, they draw it out so that it makes a lot of sense. And then the contractor gets a hold of it and goes, you know what? He forgot that sewer pipe. And I need to get that pipe from here down into the floor. And so the best place, the cheapest place to put it for me that works the best is just right here in front of this piece of stained glass. And so the contractor builds the building, works the pipe down, and all of a sudden the, con- the architect comes in and sees his design and is ready to be. And all of a sudden there's a sewer pipe running right in front of his beautiful design. And everything that he'd been trying to point people to is now pointing them to this ugly pipe. But for the contractor, it's fine. It made sense. I mean, it gets the stuff where it needs to go, A to B, and it was the cheapest route. We didn't have to run it around here and all these places and get it there. It works, right? It's functional. The architects are missing it because that's not what I designed. God was the architect of the temple. God was the architect of the tabernacle when they were, when they were running around in the desert, right? And, and there, was, there was a specific design and a specific purpose to the temple and what it represented and what it was pointing people to. And one of the things that is, is not in God's design for the temple is for there to be a, a marketplace of thievery in this house of worship. And so Jesus comes in. Jesus is God, right? God Almighty walks into his design. And sees a sewer pipe running down through what he had intended and what he had designed. And said, you are absolutely missing the point of this place. I gave you this place. I gave you this design to help point you into a relationship with God. Help point you to the Messiah. Help point you to worship. And you've made it a den of thieves. The temple was supposed to be focused on worship, and instead it had become corrupted. And this made Jesus angry. In this, we also see that Jesus expresses his feelings about worship. I find in this passage that there's a right way and a wrong way to present yourself in worship. As I mentioned earlier, there was thievery that was occurring in the transactions. So you can imagine that these guys that were doing the, the money changing were probably making a hefty profit. I've done a lot of mission trips. I've traveled around the world a little bit. I've worked with different currencies in these countries. There is one place that I will never exchange money, and that is at the airport. 
You laugh. You've been there too. They have the highest fees. They have the lowest exchange rate. Why? Because you've waited till the last minute. You need these resources when you get there. And so now you're trapped, right? And so because of the proximity to the, the purpose, because of your delay and all these things, it's, it's going to be more expensive. So I plan for these things, right? I don't, I don't do money exchange at the airport unless it's like 10, 15 bucks. So I've got to have something on the other side, something like that. But I'm not going in there with the thousands of dollars we take on trips and losing hundreds of dollars in the exchange. doesn't make any sense. In the temple, the money exchangers and the merchants could charge exorbitant fees and prices due to the convenience and proximity to the temple, right? They figured out a racket. Once they're in here and they're ready to do this, they're not going to leave and go somewhere else. They're going to do it right here. So we'll make a little more off this. They probably paid fees to the leadership to even be there, right? They probably had their little booth with their permit on it. Everybody was getting their hands in the pot. They were taking advantage of weary travelers and people unfamiliar with the city. And I'm sure there were cheaper places in town to buy your sacrificial animals after your journey. But doing it at the temple was convenient and therefore expensive. Imagine the attitude of worship you would have after just being ripped off. You travel all this distance. You're trying to come here in an attitude of worship of God, forgiveness, and all those things. You're trying to show your family and be with your family and show them these acts, understand who God is, and you go through the money changers and the animal purchase, and you just get royally ripped off. It's probably not going to put you in a great attitude of worship. My family and I recently visited Disneyland, (laughs) the happiest place on earth. It's funny, though, that the $8 corn dog is not mentioned in the Disney Family Vacation promotional video. Now, I get it. You go to a place like Disney, you kind of understand that when you get there and you're captive inside the park, that things are going to be more expensive. But it puts you in a bad mood. Okay? You've just stood in line 60 minutes for Peter Pan, which turns out to be pretty weak. And why the line is longer for Peter Pan than all the other similar rides, I don't understand. There's no fast pass for Peter Pan, but you've got to do Peter Pan. So you stand there for 60 minutes in the heat with your kids. You get it done. You're not all that impressed. And now they're hungry. So you're trying to find a place with your three children, who, by the way, have lost their minds at this point, and trying to find a place that's not going to bankrupt your vacation to get some lunch and something that they'll actually eat. And there's nothing healthy on the kids' menu. There's just not. It's the same as the bar menu. It's... it's, it's it's just junk food, right? But it's the cheaper option, so okay. We'll do it. So it's, you have these struggles. And you start to begin to wonder, who's the real Dumbo here? <laughs> and so these things, like you understand this, but it, it puts you in a bad mood. It hurts your experience at Disney. Listen, it'd be a much happier place at Disney if you're listening. Bring the food prices down. That'd make it a much happier place on earth. But in essence... What Jesus is saying about his father's house, the temple, where God is worshipped, is that that place is important and it should not be corrupted by thieves who wish to take advantage of others. We're in other ways corrupted. When we come to worship, God should be the focus. God should be preeminent and God alone should have our attention. 
When we uh, have our services on Tuesday nights, unplugged um, is what we call it. And there's a reason, a very specific reason we call it unplugged. We realize that after a day of work, you come in here at 6.30, you've probably had difficult meetings, you've probably had hard conversations at work, you've had big decisions to make, maybe the, the, the pickup line at school was crazy today, maybe soccer practice went long. All these things are a part of your day now, and then you come in here and you try to worship. And what we tell people is like, look, lay all that aside right now and unplug so that you can connect with God in this time. Do your best to set that aside, get it out of your mind, so that you can have some time to focus on your Creator. Make Him preeminent in this moment. When we come to God in worship, he should be our focus. And what was happening in the temple was taking the focus off of God and worship and causing difficulties. Because when the place of worship is corrupted, the act of worship is likely to be as well. When the place of worship is corrupted, the act of worship is likely to be as well. And this made Jesus angry. And he took action that day. Another thing that happens in this passage is that Jesus exposes himself as the Messiah. If you look back in verse 18, but the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. The Jewish leaders are always asking for miraculous signs. In verse 19, Jesus says, all right, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. You see in the passage that the leaders thought he was talking about the physical temple that they were standing in, and Jesus is talking about himself. The leaders thought and missed what Jesus was saying and thought he was specifically referencing the temple. But Jesus here, early in his ministry, makes the prediction of his own death, burial, and resurrection. In verse 22... It says, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said at this time. And they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. While the disciples didn't realize at the time, Jesus was speaking some important truth that was only fully realized when the circumstances were right. You see, in the passage right before this, Jesus was in Cana where he turned water into wine, his first miracle. And one of the things he says to his mom at this time, he's like, it's, it's, not, it's not the right time to reveal myself yet. But in this very next passage, we see Jesus comes in and starts flipping over tables, starts indicating that he's the Messiah. I'm here to save my people from their sin. And what I gleaned from this as I was looking at there's a lot of things you could look at in here. But one thing that I want to mention is that the disciples didn't even know what Jesus was actually saying at this time. It wasn't until after his death, burial, and resurrection, that they reflected back and said, oh, I remember him talking about that the day he flipped over the tables. He was telling us then that he was going to die and be raised three days later. Oh, I see it now. And there are times that as you invest in God's word, that it might not make sense at the time. But as God aligns his will and circumstances in your life, that's when the teaching of God's word may find significance for you. Because even the disciples walking with Jesus every day didn't quite understand what was going on here until later when the circumstances aligned. And my encouragement as you think about this is to trust God's word even when it's not completely understood or realized. You may just not know what you need to know yet. 
to have that scope of understanding what God is really trying to say. It might not be until some circumstances and God's will aligns in your life that you reflect back on something that you talked about in, in a community group or something that you heard on a sermon and say, oh, that's how God wants to use that in my life. That's how that makes sense. The point is that please continue to invest in God's words even when it doesn't make sense. Because that's what this place is all about, is helping us to understand what God wants in life, to dig deeper into his God's word, into his word through, through, our, through our messages, through our community groups, through doing life together. Because at some point, those things will become relevant to you. You may just not know what you know yet, need to know yet. And then the Israelite leaders here, I think it's important to mention that through all of this, that they missed the signpost. You see, the temple was a signpost. If you've ever seen you know, a signpost out in the desert or somewhere that's got you know, lots of crossing angles and you know, directional things going on there, it says, you know, like, Fiji, 1,700 miles, Phoenix, 26, you know, and all the different things that are pointing in different directions. The temple acted as a signpost to the Israelites that pointed them to salvation. God was showing them his plan of salvation for the Jews and for all of mankind through how the architect designed the temple and set up the sacrificial system. And I want you to get this. For Jesus, the spotless lamb, to predict his own death, burial, and resurrection in the place where God, the divine architect, had set up the sacrificial system to show that sin required death for payment is simply fascinating and by no accident. That God himself enters this place and makes the proclamation that I am the Messiah. I am going to die for your sins. I am going to be buried. I am going to be raised again in resurrection and in power. And he says this in the place where the divine architect put all this together as a signpost to point people to the Messiah. The Jews, unfortunately, missed the signpost. In chapter 1, he came into his own, and his own received him not. You see, the signpost is not what's important. What the signpost is pointing to is important. And through the temple, God says to Israel, here is the temple, a signpost to the Messiah. All these sacrifices you're making, they're, uh, they're pointing you in the direction of my son. And instead of looking to the Messiah, they stared at the post. And missed it. They could not see that the God they so legalistically worshipped was standing right in front of them saying, you're doing it wrong. This is not how I designed this place. I never intended this to be a place of corruption. But to be set aside for my worship. So that all nations could come and see that I am a loving God. That I am a just God. That I am a forgiving God. And that I am making provision for the sins of mankind. That he wants a relationship with his creation. And that has been corrupted in this place. And I'll have nothing to do with it. You're doing it all wrong. So Jesus does some interesting things here. There's lots of things to look at here. But a few applications. What can we learn and apply from what we've studied? 
Number one, do the things that break God's heart break yours? Do the things that break God's heart break yours? What angers you? Are they the same things that anger God? Does your heart break for the things that that break God's heart? Or are we so entrenched in our lives, in our occupation, in our comforts, that the things that anger us really don't matter that much? The fact that my cell phone battery dies after two hours, that angers me. We'll get an iPhone. I'll fix it. Um, funny note, somebody left a, a droid last week somewhere in the building. And I was going to make the announcement that they found it earlier. I was going to say, someone either left their droid or missed the trash can. I'm not sure, but I've got one in the back. Um, sorry, I was just that was for free. But what are the things that anger you? Do they line up with the things that anger God? Does your heart break for the fact that people don't know Jesus? Does that concern you? Does that show up in your thinking throughout the week? Does that show up in your actions throughout the week? Because there are a lot of things that anger us. There's lots in our country right now that can anger us, things like that, that we can get our attention. But does our heart break for the things that breaks God's heart? We find ourselves in agreement with what Jesus did in this situation. Or do we think, oh, Jesus, I was, a, I, was a little, I was a little rough there, Jesus. Does our heart break for the things that breaks God's heart? Next, the New Testament shows us that since we now have the Messiah and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that we believers are now the temple of the living God. And we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And that in no way that this is unreasonable. God no longer dwells in the temples made by man's hands. He dwells in the heart of his believers. You and I. That's right. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians six, nineteen and 20. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. The temple was the place where people came to worship. God now indwells us. And we live with him every day. And the Bible says here that he wants us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Jesus came and and sacrificed his body by death. So that we wouldn't have to offer that kind of sacrifice. That we can just accept the forgiveness that Jesus offers. But as a result of that, we come as living sacrifices and lay down our lives for whatever he wants in our lives. And he says, this is not an unreasonable request. You've been bought with a very high price. So the question is, would God be angry at what happens in your temple? Would God be angry at what's going on in this place that's designed for his worship is it a place that worship can exist without the corruption of sinfulness and misaligned priorities and listen i know we're not working at sinless perfection here we're humans we wrestle with this stuff we're working through our issues we're working in our relationship to become more like christ and take steps forward on our spiritual journey but would god be happy at what's happening in your temple 
Does it set you up in a place where you're able to offer your worship and offer your sacrifice to God? Or are your priorities so misaligned that none of that makes sense? Are you fulfilling the master's design for your life? And lastly, are you staring at a signpost instead of focusing on Jesus? Jesus is the way to salvation, not the church. Jesus is the way of salvation. The church is supposed to help point people in that direction. You know, there are some organizations, there are some belief systems that put a whole lot of emphasis on on the church and how that has salvific value in your life. Jesus is where salvation lies. It's not in this group of people. You know, one of the things, and, and it's, it's understandable in some ways, is that when people look at the church and the people inside the church, they say, if that's what God wants, I want nothing to do with church. If that's the kind of people that come out of a church, goodness gracious, I want nothing to do with it. What they miss is we are here because we are that type of person, not because of the type of person this place makes us to be like that, We recognize that we are broken people. We recognize that we are sinful people. And we want to come and bring ourselves before God and lay that on the line and say, God, help me move forward. I'm broken. And if the rest of the world could see that this is a group of broken people looking and exalting Jesus in this place, that's what's important. And like I said, I can see how the world could look at at people inside the church. And there's people that's given them a lot of ammunition against the church over the years and the decades and the centuries. But we are here focusing on Jesus so we can help other people focus on Jesus and find that salvation that we have and that we've been graced with. We are simply the people who should be pointing people to salvation. And if you've lost your focus, maybe you're here today and says, yeah, I'm just not sure about this religion thing because of the church. Take your eyes off us and put them on Jesus. We're just a signpost pointing in a certain direction. And I hope your life does that for others and doesn't become a stumbling block.